Well, thank you for joining us tonight. It's good to have you here. We are going to return uh, tonight to our study in Genesis. We'll begin in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. So you can turn in your Bibles there. We're going to have fun here tonight in Genesis 5. You might look at it and say it's a genealogy. How is that fun, Pastor Brennan? Genealogies are not fun. Yes, they are. And uh, I hope that you will agree with me when we're done here tonight. Uh, I trust that you will. We're going to spend our time in in Genesis 5, and then we'll make our way a little bit into chapter 6, really into the first, I believe it's the first eight verses there. All right, let's go ahead and jump into uh, his word here tonight. You can turn there if you want, Matthew chapter 24. I want to read this first. Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39. Yeah. Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39 says this, And these are the words of Jesus. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be? Here in this passage, we have Jesus responding to those who have asked, when when will be the sign of your coming? When will be your coming? And Jesus responds by telling them that the times preceding my coming are going to be like those in the time of Noah. Not only in terms of, as we'll consider here tonight, the wickedness of the times of Noah, but also the fact that they just did not pay attention to what was happening. And, you know, I don't know that anyone here uh, would ever suggest that we ought not study Genesis, but some have. Some in the church today have suggested that we kind of do away with much of the Old Testament, Genesis included. Genesis also because there are people within the church today, uh, and I won't spend much time on this, but even as we've considered in our study of Genesis 1 through 4, that really question its validity, its authenticity, its historicity, that it's really not uh, a true account of creation. And... We need to be a people that studies the Word of God from the beginning to end. Genesis to Revelation. That we develop an appreciation for and an understanding of and uh, and an excitement for the Word of God. Every verse, every chapter. And that we be a people who can come to a place where we have a right understanding of the creation account in Genesis and what it means for us today. And, and, and it's important as we come to chapters like chapter 5, which really begins to set the stage for 6, 7, 8 in the account of the flood, because Jesus himself referenced it and spoke to the fact that when, when I come in the days preceding my coming, it's going to be like this time, like we're beginning to consider tonight. And so this informs our understanding by studying uh, these chapters, by studying the account of the great flood, it even informs our understanding of things that are happening today and can give us even insight to some degree in what to expect. Furthermore, the genealogies, and, and certainly as you go into uh, you know, First Chronicles and things like that, there can be times when the genealogy comes and it can be a little 
laborious, working your way through it. Uh, But I think what you'll find particularly here in chapter 5 tonight, um, and we'll go through it on the front end, we'll go through it fairly quickly, and then we'll uh, kind of come back to it. Um, I think you'll find that even in the genealogies, God is communicating something to us. If we'll only be willing to, to study and to dig and to consider what what it is that he is saying to us in his word. Uh, and so if you would just agree with me in prayer once more as we look to it now. Father, this, this is your word. Lord, we treasure it. We appreciate it. And Lord, we, uh, we thank you for it. And we ask once again, Lord, give us understanding of it here tonight. Develop, Lord, our appreciation and our love for your word. Help us, Lord, to fall in love with it even more here tonight as we consider the incredible ways in which you continue to communicate your love to us and your plan of salvation. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so again, we've, we've now made our way, and, and we've had a bit of a break from Genesis, uh, but we've made our way through chapters 1 and 2, the account of the creation. Yes, we absolutely believe that this is a literal and historically accurate account of the creation of the universe. Uh, we at Calvary Chapel believe in what we would say is a young earth, uh, ranging anywhere from 6,000 to 10,000 years old. I would lean more towards even the, the lower of that number to the six and uh, seven thousand year old range uh, we believe in six literal days of creation and on the seventh god rested uh, we believe it is that way because he said it is that way and that's what we have in scripture uh, we believe that genesis is absolutely uh, foundational to all of scripture um, that if we question um, and not because we can't have questions, not because we can't, even as we've considered uh, the Sunday before last, that we can't have our doubts that we take to Jesus, that if we question, though ultimately, the creation account, if we question Genesis, then what we've done is we've begun to erode the foundation of our faith. We've begun to erode the, the foundation of a of a belief in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. And so this is critical for us. And as we've made our way through Genesis 1, we see the account of creation into Genesis 2, where we basically see God zoom in a little bit and we get more on the creation of man. Uh, we see there then in chapter 3, the fall of man, sin enters in. As sin comes in, death with it. With the effects then of sin and death, now man is fallen. We have the first children of Adam and Eve, which are, of of course, Cain and Abel, who are bringing sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice is accepted. Cain's is not. Cain, in his rage, commits the first murder. He kills his brother. And uh, from that point, Cain is really cast out. There's a mark on Cain. Nobody's to touch him. But he is going to live a life of somewhat of a, of a wanderer. And, and we will see throughout biblical history that the line of Cain is a wicked line. But, of course, as God has been from the very beginning, He's merciful. Just like the, the song that we listened to tonight, and hopefully you took the opportunity to, to just pay attention to those words and to read along with it in Scripture that God is, God is slow to anger. God is merciful. God is one who continually demonstrates mercy and grace towards us from the very beginning of time that even in Adam and Eve's sin, he was quick to restore and to cover and to continue to carry out his plan of salvation. And there is a promise that even even though at this point Abel is now dead, God 
has not been moved by this. God's plan has not been disrupted. Uh, he will continue to carry out his plan of salvation. And that's much of what we begin to see in chapter 5 and following. But I would refresh us a little bit if you look just before chapter 5 there in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 4. We read, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, even in the midst of difficult times, God is moving, God is working, God is raising up people. And, and here it's this wonderful point of encouragement as he says, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. There are men still seeking the Lord. There is a people uh, that is always still seeking after the Lord. And as we then come into chapter 5, we read this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. As we come into chapter 5, it may seem a little unusual here to all of a sudden have this sort of brief account of creation, this reminder again that God has, had created them, male and female, and some suggest here, and I think it's fair, uh, that in chapter 5, there's really a transition here of the first four chapters, which were an account that was handed down throughout generations by Adam himself, meaning that Adam was the one who originally recorded those first four chapters. Even the information that um, happened before Adam was created, that that would have been, um, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally shared with Adam, that he recorded that, and then it was handed down from generation to generation. And so uh, the first four chapters really being Adam's personal account. And now we have a transition that happens where many people believe that it's kind of handed off now, and the remainder of the account in Genesis has been handed down over time to Moses, who ultimately serves as somewhat of an editor who puts together the book of uh, the entire book of Genesis. And so there is a little bit of a uh, handing off at different points in the book. And so that's where we see some transition happening. And so here the Holy Spirit saw fit to kind of revisit the origins of man and establish humanity here as mankind. Uh, now Adam means man, remember. Ad the, the, the name Adam simply means man. And so uh, humanity then is referred to as mankind. It goes back to this particular point. This is not a sexist thing to say mankind. It just speaks of the origin of humanity. And of course, we see right off the bat here that Adam and others, as we will note, lived a very long time, right? They lived a long time here. It says here that, that, that so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years. That's pretty incredible. Those are some of the, the things that people find it tough to be able to really wrap their minds around because we don't, we don't today celebrate a whole lot of, you know, it's my 930th birthday today. Uh, that doesn't happen really often. And so people look at this and they say, well, how can that possibly be? 
right? But remember, this is the pre-flood period. The flood has not happened. We're, get, we're building up to that point. Mankind here was only slightly removed from creation and from that point when sin and death entered in. And so these were a people who were created for eternity the same way that we are created for eternity, but they're now only beginning to experience the effects of sin and death, at least on their longevity, right? They've experienced the consequences of sin, absolutely, in many different ways. But it's just really beginning to have an effect on their lifespan, on their longevity. Furthermore, what we understand, just purely based off of genetics, is if you have two perfect human beings that are created, right, and everything about them is right, there's no mutation in their genes, there's nothing going on there, they being created, created for eternity, they're going to live for a long time, and they're going to live well, and they're going to live relatively healthy. But you take us out 6,000, 7,000 years, and copy after copy after copy after copy of genes, and we start to see different things happen to us, right? And we see more disease in our world today. And so uh, these are some of the effects of sin and death having come into the world. Now we know that Adam and Eve's first two boys, Cain and Abel, they met a sad end with Abel's death and Cain's marked life. It, it may and, and probably would, be like, would likely be the case that Adam and Eve did have more children even up to this point. Um, some disagree on that. They say that Seth was the next one. Um, it seems somewhat unlikely to me that they would go uh, such a long period of time without having uh, children. And it's likely the case, in my opinion, that when Seth comes, it's, it's understood that when Seth is born that this is the one. He's the one through whom God is now going to bring the seed of the woman, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so here, with the announcement of Seth and his birth, we see God fulfilling His promise and bringing about His plan for salvation. And that's what I want us to understand. If anything, guys, as we study Genesis, yes, we learn much about and can take somewhat of a scientific view of Genesis, which we've looked at a little bit of that, especially when we were considering the six days of creation. But if nothing else from Genesis, I would want you to take an understanding of God's mercy, of His grace, and of His faithfulness, of the fact that God's plan for salvation was understood even before He created the world, and that even in man's sinfulness, God continually comes and demonstrates mercy and grace. And that needs to be something that we understand still today, because even though we can up here in our minds begin to sort of grasp the idea and the definition of grace and of mercy, sometimes it's a little tough for us to really believe it in our hearts. And we can find ourselves, even though we consider the Word of God and how God has demonstrated this towards His people throughout history, we can still amazingly convince ourselves, even on a daily basis, that we need to earn it, that we need to work for it that we're beyond God's grace, that we're beyond His forgiveness, that we've screwed up too many times, that we can't be used by God. And all of this then causes us to, to really begin to, like we've considered the past couple of Sundays, to strive, right? To work, to labor, to earn, uh, to earn God's love, to earn God's favor, to try and earn an identity that we need to achieve that. And we, and we don't. From the very beginning, we can see God's plan of salvation, His mercy, His grace on display. And we'll see that even throughout this genealogy. As we see then in verse 6, it says, Seth then lived 100 
in five years and begot Enosh. And verse 7, after he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And so the genealogy continues and it gives us insight into the generations and those who are in the line all the way down, as we'll see, to Noah at least here in chapter 5. And, and beyond this, beyond the time then of the flood, we'll see the genealogy continue as it comes through Noah's family. But here in this, in this chapter, we'll have from, from Adam to Noah. And here we've got Seth. Seth is, Seth is the one. He's the new one. He's the one who's going to develop the line to the Messiah. And so Seth here is born. And Seth means, like Adam means Man, Seth means appointed. His name means appointed. And Seth has a son, Enosh, which means subject to death. All of these names are going to make sense as we make our way through this. In verse 9, Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. And after he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 815 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 900 in five years, and he died. Now, Canaan means sorrowful. Canaan means sorrowful. In verse 12, Canaan lived 70 years and begot Mahalael. Now, after he begot Mahalael, Canaan lived 840 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. Now, this name Mahalael means from the presence of God. From the presence of God. Verse 15, Mahalael lived 65 years and begot Jared. After he begot Jared, Mahalael lived 830 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalael were 895 years and he died. Now Jared, and this is funny, right? Because it's like, if your name's Mahalael, you're like, I'm naming my kid Jared. That's just my opinion on that one, right? Seth didn't come up with something complicated, you know, but all of a sudden we get to Mahalel and he's like, that's, ah, you're Jared. We're going to name you Jared. But Jared means one comes down. One comes down. Now again, I know I'm moving through this fairly quickly. This is going to connect us to the first part of chapter 6, and then we're going to come back and consider this for a moment. Verse 18, Jared then lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And we're going to pause for a little bit on Enoch here. In verse 19, it says, After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And so here now we come to a special man in Scripture, Enoch. Jared has a son named Enoch, and Enoch, his name means dedicated. Now this is a fitting name for Enoch. As we'll see here, Scripture tells us first that Enoch had a son, as we read in verse 21. It says, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Now, that's an interesting name as well, right? It's a little easier to say Methuselah, uh, which means dying he shall send. So not only are some of these names a little weird, but they also have some interesting translations, right? Methuselah, meaning dying he shall send, which, why that name? Well, uh, what we will find out is that in the year that Methuselah dies, what happens? The flood. 
So in the year that Methuselah, who happens to be the, the person who lives the longest out of everybody, he's, he's, he's got the longest lifespan. In the year that he dies, here comes the flood. Dying, he will send. And so it makes sense, and his name is really prophetic in that way. But we also read here of his father Enoch, which is a pretty amazing story. It says in verse 22, after he, Enoch, begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. 300 years and had sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. What's the, what's the thing that, as we've been reading very quickly here through the genealogy thus far, we've noted that here's so-and-so, and they lived this long and what? And died. And then this person lived this long and died. Now, Enoch here lives shorter than any of them. He has a shorter lifespan than any of them, but it doesn't say that he died. It says that he walked with God, verse 24, and he was not, for God took him. This is an incredible account in Scripture as we look back at this, and this would be the first example of one who experienced something in this way. And this can be a little bit puzzling, but the author of Hebrews, if you remember back to our uh, study of Hebrews, in particular chapter 11 uh, and verse 5, this author of Hebrews many years later gives us insight into what happened to Enoch. Again, in Hebrews 11:5, he writes, By faith, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. The language in Genesis is a little uh, unclear. The author of Hebrews makes it clearer to us. He did not die. He didn't die. It says, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. This is an incredible account of an individual whose life was such an example, whose life was so dear to God, who, who walked with God and pleased God, that God saw fit that rather than this man die, he was translated into the presence of the Lord. He was taken, taken up. In fact, you could say that he was raptured. That in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he was through another dimension taken into the presence of God. Now, this was the first account where this happens, but not the last account. We also know that the prophet Elijah was taken up in a similar fashion with perhaps a bit more fanfare, as the scripture tells us, and with some fire and chariots and different things like that. But here is this man who God decides, I'm just going to take you. I mean, that has to kind of blow our minds as we think about this. Now, many of you may remember what we considered when we first talked about uh, Enoch this, this past year, but it's important for us to consider and pause here for a moment because, because, again, no one else has this description about their life. The first thing we read about Enoch is that he walked with God. And then the author of Hebrews tells us that he pleased God. This means that this man lived a life that was truly glorifying to God, that was pleasing to the Lord. What we need to understand when we hear that somebody walked with God is that, listen, to walk with someone means a few different things. It means that you need to agree with them. You need to commit to actually walking with them, to go where it is that they're going. Some of you may remember the, 
the three P's that we considered when we looked at what it means to walk with God. And, and for any of you, if you're going to go along and walk with somebody, well, the first thing that you're going to agree on, right, is the path. Where is it that we're going? How, how are we going to get there? When you're walking along with somebody, you're, you're agreeing to say, we're going to follow this same path. Otherwise, if you say, no, I want to take a different path, you're no longer what? Walking with them. And so you've got to agree on the path first. You also need to agree on the pace, the speed at which you're going to walk. Because once again, if you decide, hey, we're on the same path, but you're just going too slow. Well, then guess what? You're no longer walking with that person. You're now running ahead of them or falling behind them. And the final thing, the, the third P that you need to agree upon is the place, the destination. At what point are you going to say, hey, our walk has now ended. We're at the place that we had intended on arriving at. Now, when we think about then Enoch walking with God, we need to understand that Enoch made a commitment to say, God, whatever the path is, I'm with you. Whatever the pace is, I'm with you. Whatever the place is, I'm there. And that's a wonderful thing for us to consider in the life of Enoch, but we should also consider it in our own lives as well. If you desire to walk with God, which by the way, any of us who read this verse, if you are a Christian and you have a heart, but you should say, I want that. I'm perfectly fine even with you saying, Lord, wouldn't it be awesome if you just took me home like Enoch? Now for me, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, and I believe personally that it's going to happen in, in our lifetime. I'm hopeful of that. I'm excited about that possibility. And so I have confidence that I am going to experience something that Enoch experienced. But that we would experience it because of our own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we should. We should look at this and we should say, man, what is my life like? Would I be described in this way? Would I be one that people would say, man, that person walks with God. That person pleases the Lord. And, and if not, if there's some gaps in our life, it's not that we should feel a sense of condemnation about that, remember, but conviction certainly to say, well, well what needs to improve? Do I maybe at times say to the Lord, Lord, I don't want to go this way. I have a better path, Lord. I don't, I don't want to go the direction that you're taking me. Lord, you've told me to go this way, but I don't want to. That path is too hard. I know of an easier path, Lord, that I'd like to take. I mean, you can fill in the blanks for yourself, but where in your life do you tend to question the path that God has for you? Or maybe when you are on that path and you say, all right, praise the Lord, God, we're, we're, we're going there. You've, you've shown me where to go, but man, it's just taken a really long time, Lord. This has just taken way too long. Lord, I, I sensed your call to ministry, and Lord, that was hard. That was hard to give up these other things and to say, yes, I'll go into ministry. So, Lord, I accepted the path, but I expected it to happen sooner than that. You know, I went into ministry in 2001, and I thought, Lord, vocational ministry, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to spend all my time doing. And I was 33 before that started to really materialize. That doesn't make sense for you with the math. You're like, well, how old were you in 2001? I just thought of that in my mind, right? How old was I then? It took 14, 15 years really, to begin to see what I knew God had said, here's the path that you're going on, to really begin to, to manifest. And so the pace was way, way off, Lord. I'm totally ready to go faster than this. No, you're not. <laughs> right? The Lord says, no, no, you're not. You need to slow that train down. you got a lot of things to learn. 
And then how about the place? Well, Lord, I, this wasn't in the brochure. It looked a lot nicer than this, right? It looked cleaner. It looked fancier. This can't be the, this can't be the place. Right? There's a million different ways where we can look at these things and go, yeah, I'm, I, I do that in my life. It, it's amazing to me sometimes in Scripture, you think to yourself, Lord, I want more. <laughs> I want more on Enoch. I want to understand this more. Because we just have a few verses of this guy. We have, we have Genesis, Hebrews, and, and, and a brief mention in Jude. And it's like, really? A guy who lived for 365 years that you said was awesome, and so you said, come hang out with me? And we don't get more on that? It's kind of an incredible thing sometimes. But we look at this life and we have to ask ourselves, Lord, what would that be like? How do I walk with you, Lord, and how do I please you? And here's the other thing, and we'll see this a little bit more with Noah as well, that in order to rightly understand, in order to rightly understand, what is that path, Lord? What is the pace? What is the place that we're going, Lord? Well, you've got to know him. You've got to be able to hear him. If I go right now over to Walmart and I go into the parking lot and I just, I just jump out of the car and I find the first random stranger and I say, hey, let's walk, and I grab their hands and I say, let's go. Do you think they're going to agree with me on the path, the pace, and the place? I'm going to get maced. That's what's going to happen, right? Or tased or whatever, right? It's going to be like, get this guy away, right? Something bad's probably going to happen. Or if it's not, I probably need to be concerned, right? With who am I walking with? If they're like, yeah, let's go. That doesn't make sense. If you choose to walk with somebody, to agree with someone on a journey, well, you know each other. You know each other. And for us to be able to understand and discern, Lord, is this the path? Is this what you have for me? Well, we've got to be familiar with his voice. And that's what we see, and, and, and granted, some of this is certainly speculation, but I think it's fair speculation to look at a life like Enoch and to, and to understand these things about him and to say, that those, must, those things must have been true. That Enoch had a special relationship with God. And here's the other encouragement, is that Enoch was living in a fallen world. Enoch was living in a wicked time. Yet he was able to foster and to develop a relationship with God where he walked with him and he pleased him in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. That should be an encouragement to us. That should be an exhortation to us as well. What's our life like? Are we agreeing with God on where we're going and how we're getting there? Are we willing to say, are you willing to say, Lord, wherever you want me to go, however you want me to get there, no matter how much time it takes, I'm willing to go. And I want to know you, Lord, and I want to spend time with you. I shared this a little bit earlier again as we were just kind of even considering the, the topic for tonight. And, you know, I'm going to trust that each and every one of you, because you're here tonight, have a desire to know the Lord more. You wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night if you didn't have a desire to, to seek the Lord and to know Him more and to hear His voice and to learn. But this is what we need more of. There's not a, there's not a good pastor <laughs> in the world that doesn't want for themselves first, yes, because we've got to deal with this first, but then for those that they're called to shepherd to be developing intimate time with the Lord. Because that's where we learn. That's where we learn to hear His voice. That's where we, we learn to hear His voice. We practice hearing His voice. We, we develop familiarity with Him. It's in those times of prayer, 
of study of his word. Yes, sometimes in groups, sometimes in the congregational setting, but absolutely in those one-on-one individual times. And sadly today, we are seeing so many in the church struggle, struggle to discern God's will, struggle to understand what, what it is that God desires of them, struggle with fear and anxiety and doubt and all of these things that are not from the Lord. Why? I'm not saying they're bad people, but I would, I would suggest that they're not familiar with Him and His voice, that they've not developed a level of intimacy and confidence in who He is and in His sovereignty that they can say, Lord, I trust you. And I don't say that from a place of judgment, but I do say that from a place of, hey, we, we've, got to, we've got to be able to check that reality in our own hearts. And then if, if there's a gap there, to pursue it such that we too could be a people who walk with God and please God and hear His voice and do the things that these men were called to do. In verse 25, we read, Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. And after he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Now Lamech means to the poor and lonely. That one kind of fits. I know Lamech sort of has that sound to it. And this is the father then of one of our key characters. Verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and had a son and he called his name Noah saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. And after he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Now, Noah literally means rest or comfort, which is embedded there within the prophetic phrase that was given by his father saying this one will comfort us and so Noah literally means rest or comfort and it says that Noah was 500 years old verse 32 and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now it's believed that Noah likely had other children as well but uh, we don't know that for sure of course Uh, and many of these genealogies sometimes would skip certain individuals and and so what we do know is that Shem, Ham, and Japheth were the ones that were obedient, followed their father, and as we'll see, uh, boarded the ark. Now as we make our way then into chapter 6, we've had the stage set now for Noah. We've seen several generations go by, and we come now into chapter 6, and we begin to see what's been happening in the world and the things that are going on that really bring us up to the point of, and the necessity, quite frankly, for the flood. It says in verse 1, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. We're going to focus on the first part here, verse 1, and then we'll come back to what's this kind of odd thing happening in verse 2. Here at the beginning of chapter 6, what we have here is that there is a population boom on the earth, okay? The population is greatly increasing across the earth. It's pretty incredible when you think about uh, the lifespan of these pre-flood individuals, the people living on the earth at this time, and what's possible in terms of population growth. If today we say essentially that people could live upwards of uh, 70, 75, 80 years, 
many of those years considered no longer childbearing years, but yet our population is still growing at an exponential rate, then imagine if people are living 900 years, what can happen? You can find a handful uh, of different perspectives and thoughts on the potential of the population during this time. Studies on this, uh, if you were to go out and and Google it, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, Having considered the genealogy in chapter 5, we know that people were living again for about 900 years, right? And we know that people had a lot of kids. It says not only did you get an example of one, but then they had sons and daughters, right? And so presumably they had many, many kids. But if at this time, and I'd say it's conservative, if we just looked at this and said, okay, let's say a man has four kids, which again, I think during this time, they probably had a lot more than four kids, but let's say just a man has four kids and then his kids follow suit. His kids have four kids and so on and so forth. That over five generations, over five generations, his family would increase to 96 people. That's the exponential growth over five generations of each one having four kids. Okay, To 96. That's a big family reunion by any standards today, right? Now in 10 generations, this would jump to 3,070. In 20 generations, are you ready? Over 20 generations, this would be 3,120,000 people. Over 30 generations, you're now at close to 3.2 billion. Now, the implication here is that by the time of Noah, the population would have been several billion. In fact, most people agree that it would be several billion more than what is on the earth today. So if you ever thought that when the flood happened during the time of Noah, that it was just a few people in Noah's hometown, it's quite different. Several billion. Now, Again, this is very possible, both the lifespan and the population growth of a pre-flood people, only again more recently impacted by the effects of sin and death. And so for us being further removed from that, we experience the effects more profoundly, right? As evidenced again, as I mentioned, by the increase of disease and a more limited lifespan. So prior to the flood, this is very, if, if you are accepting the creation account as truth, which that's the foundation for what we believe in the Bible, then you're going to look at this and say, yeah, this is absolutely what could happen. Now, verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, why won't God strive? Now, we've, we've heard this word here recently. Better stated here, better translated, this is abide. This would be more God saying, My spirit will not abide with man forever. Why won't God's spirit abide with man forever? Because he was increasingly wicked. Because now sin was really beginning to move. And and so think about that population growth. You you just got a petri dish of sinners, right? I mean, that's what's happening. It's just growing out of control. Look to uh, verse 5. Verse 5 says, um, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is what we're dealing with at this time. So you're talking about billions of people who are just evil. And so again, at this point, sin's entered in, and along with it, wickedness. Now remember that Adam and Eve's sin came as a result of the influence of Satan. So it's not just about sin, but about the working of Satan in the world, okay? So it's not just simply that sinful DNA is replicating, but the fact that there is an enemy in the world influencing, manipulating, 
so that wicked would increase even more. And this is really what the idea of the sons of God is about, which we'll consider here shortly that we read there in verse 2. So Satan has influence over many. The world is experiencing population boom. Uh, Who knows where this population is spread over in terms of where in the world the the population is at uh, at this particular time? Of course, yes, we would assume there in the Middle East. But remember, this is before the flood, so much of the world changes after uh, the flood. So we don't know how dense some of this population is, likely there was considerably dense populations at this time. Add into those dense populations violence, sexual perversion, godlessness, demonic activity. Remember Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, right? So these things, guys, as I'm saying some of this, in many respects, this should start to sound familiar to us. We should be thinking about our world today and go, man, population is increasing, right? Wickedness is increasing. And it's interesting. I read in a commentary of a sociological experiment regarding overpopulation. Uh, the researchers in this experiment, they took rats, okay? They, they used rats as part of their experiment, which, you know, by the way, it's, uh, rats are often used in experiments, right? Which should sort of tell us something about humanity. Like, hey, we need to figure out something about humans, and so we're going to do it on rats first, right? That just kind of tells us something right there. And they take the rats, and they put them in an environment that mirrored the population density of New York City. Okay, so they took the population of New York City, how dense it was, and they said, we're going to put, we're going to sort of find the uh, mathematical equation to this, and we're going to pack rats in in the same way. What do you suppose happened? In a very short period of time, what they noticed most amongst the rats was first that rats began to abandon their maternal instinct, no longer caring for their young, was the first thing that happened. And from there, they began to bite and to even devour one another, even though there was an available food source. Look around at the world. Look where the population is most dense in our world. How's it going in those places? This isn't just advocacy to say, hey, let's move out to the country, right? We're blessed to be in a less populated area. This is about, look, look at it. Look at the major cities. Look at what's happening in the major cities. Is there violence? Yes. Is there wickedness? Yes. Is there an erosion of the family? Yes. Is there a failure to steward resources well, resulting in an almost, I emphasize almost, but an almost literal devouring of one another, when really there's, there's the availability of resources just not stewarded well? I mean, it's pretty incredible when you think about what was likely happening at this time and when you think about what's happening right now. And I know that I'm making a general statement here, but this is generally true, right? So God says, I will not allow man to remain in this state forever. And God says specifically they have another 120 years. And I believe that this 120 years is speaking of the time remaining until the flood. Some suggest that this is the basic, that the God is basically communicating, here's now going to be the lifespan of man, but I don't think that fits the context of the passage as it moves now here to uh, carrying us closer to the flood. Uh, and so I really think that this is the beginning of a countdown, that this, is, that this is God saying, 120 years is the extent that I'm going to abide with man here before destruction. But once again, that tells us that what? God is merciful. God is merciful. And so then we read as we continue on in verse 4, it says, Then there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. So 
again, we, we, we see this briefly in verse 2, and now we come back to this again, and this should cause us to go, okay, what, what, what exactly is going on here? What, what or who are these giants, and, and who are the sons of God? Now, the sons of God were mentioned, as I said, in verse 2, and the giants are the offspring of the sons of God, who are most believe either fallen angels who have rebelled against God, also essentially known as demons operating on this earth, or perhaps demon-possessed men, those under the possession or the influence of Satan, who had relations with women or daughters of men. Now, there's another view out there uh, that, that some have suggested that this is really about sons of men who are of the line of Seth, a godly line, daughters of men who are of the line of Cain, an ungodly line, and that this was just simply a union that God uh, did not bless, that he did not uh, ordain, if you will. The problem is that doesn't really match up with uh, one, uh, God's judgment upon it, um, how severe his judgment is, nor does it really match up with the language that we see in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for giants, by the way, is Nephilim, if you've heard that word before, and that means fallen ones. Okay? That means fallen ones. And the phrase sons of God is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. That's benai Elohim, and it always, at least within the Old Testament, refers to angels. So these sons of God within the Old Testament context consistently refers to angels. Now, New Testament informs this a little bit, right? When we read things like, for example, in Jude, verse 6, that says, And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Uh, we see in Scripture where it's spoken of these particular angels. Um, now, there is an extra-biblical text, an apocryphal text, uh, the book of First Enoch, uh, so that's an extra-biblical text. It means it's not inspired scripture. It's not in the canon. Nevertheless, some of these apocryphal texts still can contain truth. This one in particular is even referenced in scripture by Jude. And if you look at First Enoch, it says this, And it came to pass that the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. And they took unto themselves wives and each chose for himself one and they began to go unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments. And they became pregnant and they bare great giants and there arose much godlessness. And they committed fornication and they were led astray and became corrupt in all of their ways. So it, it's interesting here and I really think, you know, many... There's one particular scholar out there who it seems to almost make the latter part of his life's work figuring out this, <laughs> trying to go, what does this mean? And had all these theories for the Nephilim, and it was kind of entertaining to listen to every now and then, but it was one of those things where it's like, listen, we don't, we, we don't fully know, nor is it profitable for us to spend a great deal of time trying to fully understand this, other than to say, man, something happened here that certainly seems like it was of Satan that it was not good, it didn't please the Lord. And that's really what we should ask ourselves here is, is what is this all about? Right? Why, why do this? Why, why, what was the intention here? And we know in John chapter 10, verse 10, it says that, I, that the enemy comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. Why? Well, because from the very beginning, it was Satan's desire to disrupt God's plan. Genesis 3.15 says, and this is part of God's basically aha moment for Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman 
and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Satan has always been about, it started first in his own pride and his desire to be like God and to become like God and then to lead humanity astray and then to not take a hint when God says, you're not, you're not going to stand a chance and to continue to work to disrupt the plan of God. What better way to disrupt God's plan than to pollute the line of the Messiah? To come in and to try and, and pollute the entire human race. Again, whether that's through fallen angels or whether that's through demon-possessed men that are under the influence of Satan, but to just basically destroy the family and destroy the line to Jesus. Now, it's a pathetic attempt on the part of Satan, but an attempt nevertheless. And if that sounds odd in any way, because again, sometimes we look as far back as the creation account and people can struggle to kind of go, man, so much of this just sounds like this far-fetched story. But what of Pharaoh? What of Pharaoh and his decree? to kill the firstborn? What of Herod and his decree to do the same? What of Hitler and his attempts to wipe out an entire race? It's not that far-fetched when we look at history to see over and over again Satan working behind the scenes to influence men to disrupt God's plan. The wickedness of Satan and of men under his influence is great in this time. So great that here God determines he's going to destroy them. In verse 5 we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, Again, in that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Sin at this point had totally consumed humanity. They had become a godless and immoral people. And again, remember that Jesus says that the time before his coming will be like this time. Here we find that God was sorrowful over the condition of humanity. Right? And that's not to suggest that suddenly God was surprised and said, oh man, I just really screwed this up. It's God showing the fact that he has emotion, that he cares for his creation, that he's burdened over the condition of his creation. I wonder how he feels about the world today. Our world is increasingly wicked, devoid not just of faith in God, but even of basic morality. That's a big part of what our country is missing. Those who suggest that that our country was at one point a Christian nation don't truly understand the foundations of our country. Our country was founded on biblical principles. The documents themselves that have uh, that established our country, in my opinion, uh, apart from the Bible, are the most incredible documents that man has ever developed. They've just not always been upheld and carried out the way that they were intended to be. And to say that we are a Christian nation, and I know that many people debate that, but I don't, I don't think we can confidently say that. What I can say, once again, is that we're a nation founded on biblical principles with many Christians living in that nation, right? But what we have long been is a moral nation, and even that has begun to severely erode. We're beginning to experience these very times, and this is why, and, and, and we don't know this, It could be another hundred years before Jesus comes back. I don't know. But as we look at these things and as we consider Scripture, which we should, looking anxiously for Him and anticipating that day, 
We need to look around us and say, man, Lord, this is what's happening. Like we read in 2 Timothy in chapter 3, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And I look at all that and I say, yep. And not in a way where I say, well, we're better, but you, you, you look at it and you say, Lord, this is what's happening. But here's the encouragement to us as we start to close, is rest assured that the condition of our country today, rest assured that the condition of our world today, it burdens the Lord. We serve a God who is merciful. We serve a God who loves. We serve a God who is, who does, I believe, look at creation and no differently than before the flood to say he is sorrowful for the condition of it. But it does not disrupt his plan. It does not disrupt his plan. It doesn't cause God to go, oh, I need to come up with a new plan or I need to devise a new way or oh, what am I going to do? No, he is God. He is above all things. And so there is still hope. There's a living hope for us as Christians in terms of what we believe in and in our inheritance. And there's still hope in terms of men finding grace yet still, as we read in verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it says, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. And what? Noah walked with God. This word, but here at the beginning of verse 8 is a preposition meaning Except, And if ever you had an appreciation for a part of speech, let it be this one. Because when we see B-U-T in the Bible, it typically is a wonderful encouragement to us. For when it seems like all is lost and hopeless, God has a way of turning things around. Many of you have experienced that in your own life. It's your testimony. And here we see that one man... In the midst of a wicked generation, Noah and members of his family found grace. Unmerited favor. Unearned. It says he found it. He received it. He did not earn it. Continually. We're only in chapter 6 now. And over in every chapter, we've seen God's grace demonstrated towards mankind. And what do you suppose that that did for Noah? as he became aware of what God was doing in his life, though he did not earn it, though he did not deserve it. Guys, this this is in part where God has had, had us as a church over these last few weeks. Think about it. Cease, cease striving, right? Rest in him. Take his yoke upon you. That's grace. All of that is grace. When we really begin to understand grace, when we realize that our relationship with God does not depend on our own efforts, but rather in His unchanging and loving character, we begin to truly understand what it means when when Scripture says Noah found grace. And for so many, there's this struggle of, you know, the God of the Old Testament. And while, yes, it's a struggle for many, the fact is it's not rooted in truth. It's the same God, Old Testament, New Testament, yesterday and today, the same God, and He loves you and He loves us. He didn't, and by the way, He didn't just love Noah. He didn't decide to, to just show Noah grace and no one else. 
He had grace for all. He desires that none would perish. But in Noah, he found one who would respond, who would be obedient, who would walk with him, who would trust him with the path and the pace and the place where others would not. And he found one who he could give the task of building an ark and not just building the ark, but preaching to a lost generation, preaching a message of repentance that no one responded to over a century. Can you imagine how difficult that had to be? You want to talk about walking with God and trusting the path and the pace and the place? When, somebody, when, when God comes to you and he says, hey, I want you to build a boat. And at this particular time, by the way, he was not on the shore. He wasn't over by the ocean. There wasn't a navy. Noah had to have been, most people agree, thinking, what's a boat? Right? What's an ark? You want me to do what? Build a boat? Yeah, it's this, you know. And here's what's going to happen. The entire earth is going to flood, right? And he begins to explain to Noah what's going to happen. Wait, wait, what is that? Wait, what? And, and by the way, it's going to take 120 years. Oh, okay. Now, granted, when you're living for 900 years, it's, you know, you can put it into perspective. Nevertheless, it's like, okay, well, that's going to be a little while. And while that's happening, everybody's going to make fun of you. They're all going to think you've lost it. And you need to go and preach a message of repentance to them. But he found one who was willing to be obedient, to walk with him and to trust him in those things. And as Noah drew near to God, as James 4, 8 says, he will draw near to you. Noah experienced that. And we can as well. And so it says Noah walked with God like his great-grandfather. Noah chose to trust God with the path and the pace and the place. And through Noah, as was prophesied, he would then be the one who will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Noah would be the one who would make a way for a godly generation to continue. And look at that again. That he will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. Does that sound familiar? I mean, think for a minute where we've been. In Matthew chapter 11 and verses 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And here is a man that God has come to in the midst of a wicked generation, and he has said, He's going to give you hope. He's going to give you rest. He's going to comfort you. Noah points us, as many have before him, throughout each of these chapters, it points us to Christ. I mentioned that we'd go back to the genealogy, recall the literal names for each of the people that are mentioned in the genealogy. We had Adam, which means man, and Seth, which means appointed, and Enosh, which means subject to death, and Canaan, sorrowful, and Mahaliel, from the presence of God, and Jared, whose one comes down, and Enoch, dedicated, Methuselah, dying, he shall send, and Lamech, to the poor and lowly, and Noah, rest. Now if we read those a little differently here, what does God's word tell us? When God puts a genealogy into the Bible before He begins to discuss what He's doing in His creation and He's doing with His people, and yes, in an effort to be merciful, but saying that man can't remain in this forever, but yet still making a plan, a man who's going to try and rescue people. But He gives us this genealogy. He gives us insight into these people, this line from Seth, the line that would lead to the Messiah. And He says, here's the ones, here's the godly men that are going to make a way through the flood and through the trial 
And if you put all of their names in order like it gives us here in Scripture, what we read is the man appointed to death, sorrowful. From the presence of God, one comes down, dedicated. Dying, he shall send to the poor and lowly rest and comfort. You don't think genealogies are important? That God, through his chosen men and women, through his word, communicates incredibly profound truths that we're only in the chapter 6, verse 9, and over and over and over and over and over, God says, I'll send you one, one who will give you rest. All through Scripture, the sovereign God of the universe calls out to a saying, just come to me, rest in me, walk with me, trust me, get to know me, learn my ways. We are a people, Christian, who have found grace, unmerited favor, who in the midst of perilous times serve a God who has said, I've made a way for you. Just trust me. Be willing to let me direct your path. Let me set the pace for you. Let me pick the place for you. Just just rest in me. Walk with me. Take my yoke upon you. Over and over again, all these different places, just say, come to me. And so I pray, like I said at the beginning, that these passages are even more of an encouragement to you tonight, that this genealogy is even more of an encouragement to you tonight as you get yet again a reminder of a God who loves you, who says, I've made a way for you. But guys, in the midst of this generation, and in the, pardon the vernacular, but today I had a conversation, and it was just put very bluntly that this year sucks. That's the sentiment of many. (laughs) And I know I'm not supposed to say that on live stream. My parents always used to say, don't say that word, right? Well, it was a rather profound statement, right? It is tough. But in the midst of it all, we can come to one who is above all things, who is sovereign, who's saying, just trust me, walk with me. The man appointed to death, sorrowful. From the presence of God, one comes down dedicated. Dying, he shall send to the poor and lowly rest and comfort. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, as we often say thank you, Lord, it often feels like a gross understatement, especially, Lord, as we consider your word and how incredible it is, living and active, Lord, sharper than any two-edged sword pierces us, Lord. Division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow discerns, Lord, the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And Lord, through it all is the most wonderful love letter that's ever been written from a Father in heaven who loves his creation and his children dearly, who consistently from the very beginning, even before the beginning, before time, knew our wickedness, knew our sin, and said, I will create anyway. But I'll redeem, I'll restore, I'll reconcile, I'll give, I'll sacrifice. Lord, we don't deserve it, and that's your grace. And Lord, we're so grateful for that here tonight. And Lord, whether it's just for me, somehow I doubt that, it's for all of us, Lord, there's this continual reminder. Lord, we're just making our way through Matthew, making our way through Genesis. And Lord, you keep bringing us back in, in, in what is arguably for many one of the more difficult years that they've faced. You keep bringing us back, Lord. To say, just trust me, walk with me, rest in me. Stop trying to do it on your own. Stop laboring, stop toiling. Just come to me. I'll comfort you. I'll carry you through this. And so, Lord, help us to do just that. Help us to repent of any ways, Lord, in which we are continuing to to strive and to fight and to wrestle and to toil and to labor, whatever it is, Lord. Help us to rest in you and to trust you. 
And Lord, as we do just that, as we draw near to you, Lord, to grow more and more comfortable in your presence, to develop intimacy with you, Lord, to know your voice, to hear your voice, Lord, so that, Lord, when the struggles seem to increase, Lord, we can just have absolute confidence in who you are and the way in which you cover us, Lord, and protect us. So, Father, do that work, Lord, I pray in our hearts. Each and every one of us, Lord, draw us close to you, Lord, we pray. Father, we love you, we praise you, we give you thanks. We ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.